Welcome to episode seven of the Composer Happy Hour, presented by Whatever and Ever Amen. If you're a first-time listener, I'm so glad you found us and gave us a listen. I hope you enjoy the show. I know there are a few of you listening right now who are real followers of the show. Fans, even? And if you fall into that category, I want to ask you for a favor. Before you start the episode, share a link to the show on your preferred social media platform and let people know what you like about it. It means a lot to me, and your recommendations will carry some weight with your friends. I appreciate you helping us to get the word out, so thank you. I also want to once again remind everyone that the show is available in video format at www.buymeacoffee.com slash whateverchoir. And if you feel so inclined, you can also support the show by buying us a beer on that site. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you are listening to. Our guest today is Jennifer Jolly. Jen is awesome. I've been a major fan of her work since I first heard it, and I am equally a fan of her as a person. Today we talk baseball, bourbon, and why fuck is such a great word for choral music. If you haven't already, pour yourself a drink. My name is Brad Pearson, my guest is Jennifer Jolly, and this is the Composer Happy Hour. Jennifer Jolly, welcome to the Composer Happy Hour. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Brad? I am super great. I'm excited to be here talking with you, excited to have a drink, and uh, you know, yeah, great. Sounds great. Uh, Tell us what you're drinking tonight. So I'm pretty basic tonight. Um, I am drinking a gin and tonic because I live in Texas and it is balls hot out here. Um, admittedly, um, I'm actually going a little non-alcoholic today just cause like my stomach's a little queasy. So I'm doing that drink Monday stuff, which is really good. Yeah. Um, I would say that if I were going the alcoholic route, I would do a bourbon that I just tried. Um, there is this distillery in Austin, Texas, and I went yeah. to my local liquor, liquor store and they're called still Austin. And they have this bourbon called the musician which has a little bit of a kick to it. Um, so I'd probably be having that. Also, my spouse did drink the rest of it right before this podcast. So. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I was like, thanks, thanks, babe. Thanks yeah. for, thanks for doing it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm basic in that I'm doing beer again, which people that have been listening, that's, I've just had beer pretty much uh, every episode. Uh, but this is uh, Founders Imperial Stout, which is a Ooh. Russian imperial stout, which was on purpose uh, for a conversation. And uh, so it's a, a 10.5%. It's a little bit boozy, uh, kind of chocolatey and wonderful. So oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, in fact, I looked, <laughs> I knew that I had some Russian imperial stouts in the uh, cellar, but I had to look it up and make sure because that was kind of, that was the inspiration for the conversation and people will figure that out uh later so uh cheers cheers friend uh you mentioned um texas you're relatively new to texas how long have you been there now three or four years um i would say um i'm wrapping up my third year so okay. i moved to texas in august of 2018 um because i got hired by texas tech university so i'm <laughs> an assistant professor of composition there. Um, 
bless my spouse who kind of packed up, packed me up while I was teaching at Interlochen in the middle of teaching at Interlochen in Michigan. I had to fly down to Lubbock, find a place to live. And then basically I drove from Interlochen to my apartment in Ohio. And then the next day we took off on the road to nice. move. So, um, yeah, that was, that was my trip. And yeah, I've been here about three years going on for. And how are you finding Texas? I ask that it, and give as nuanced an answer as you want, because obviously you are employed there and have surely made wonderful uh, friends and communities uh, there. But um, Texas is kind of its own uh, thing. Well, as I as I tell my New Yorker <laughs> friends, um, I have to remind them and myself that Texas used to be its own country. And I think it explains all the things. Mm -hmm. um, jokingly, I say that Lubbock is very flat, which it is. Um, yeah. When I first visited Lubbock, which was actually not during my interview here, I had a piece world premiered at Lubbock, Texas. There was a conducting DMA student who um, friends from undergrad and he did a world premiere of a piece of mine. So I flew out to Lubbock and I remember he had on his uh, computer, a bumper sticker that said, keep Lubbock flat. It was mm. kind of like a trade of like keep Austin weird or something yeah, like right. that. So um, it is so flat here that I think I can see the curvature of the earth. It is <laughs> just plains, like the sky uh -huh. is enormous and beautiful. Um, but I, I will say that it's flat and it is the most Texas place in the state of Texas. So every single stereotype <laughs> you think of Texas, uh -huh. you're actually thinking about Lubbock, Texas. All right. So there you have it. All right. Uh, hey, I wanted to ask you, you're a sports fan, uh, I as I recall. And I know you're a Dodgers fan. I am a Dodgers fan. And the Dodgers are a half game behind the Giants right now, but they have won nine out of their last 10. They have. You must be feeling feeling good about that. I am feeling good about it. Um, I like to tell myself that um, this is before the All-Star break. Um, yeah. I still think we have a solid team. Personally, I did not think the Giants would be our competitors this year. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was more the Padres and we are, we have not been doing well against the Padres, but um, <laughs> I, I'm feeling good. I know that we lost to the Marlins last night um, mm. and they're playing them as we speak. I'm just very excited that we finally won a World Series last year. Um, mm -hmm. And I know it was a weird year for the whole world, but I will take the win. Uh -huh. And I did buy some swag. So nice. I'm excited that, were, that we're the World Series champions. And they recently went to the White House and um, relief pitcher Joe Kelly recently um, traded one of his jerseys for a mariachi jacket. Um, as a side note, Joe Kelly's mom is Mexican, like Mexican descent. And uh, he wore that mariachi jacket to the White House. With the hashtag nice. Joe meets Joe. So nice. <laughs> well, I, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm a Cubs fan who have lost oh, 10 in God. a row. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, and I, I think I, actually yeah. you, the Dodgers should probably credit the Cubs for their more recent success because the Cubs did a little West Coast swing and they beat up on the Padres and they beat up on the Dodgers and the Cubs were looking great. And kind of since then, we've we've gone in opposite directions. Yeah. Um, I might have great. to ask, um, now that Jock Peterson is playing for your team, how's he doing? 
you know, I uh, I have a one year old, so I don't watch <laughs> a lot of baseball. You know, you do. I, he's adorable. Thanks. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I see so few games, and of course, the way that uh, Major League Baseball is that unless you're paying for this, you know, a, a Major League Baseball package, I just don't get very many Cubs games. I get a lot of Indians games and a mm-hmm. lot of Tigers games. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I, I don't see a lot of games so I can, you know, I can tell you box scores, but that doesn't necessarily give a good indication of how you feel about somebody on your team. That, you know, That's true. I feel like with baseball, it's not just about the stats, even though there are stats for everything, mm-hmm. but, um, there's definitely that feel that emotion you have with the player. Um, that being said, when we stop recording, I can hook you up with a password and username if you so choose. <clears throat> well, mm-hmm. all right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, now sports, uh, are you a fan of any other sports? Is it, is it baseball? And that's, that's the thing. So it's primarily baseball. Uh, my new year's resolution this year was to actually understand soccer uh-huh. and, um, couple of reasons I've watched the TV series, Ted Lasso four times or maybe five. I don't know. Like I made my parents watch it when so I finally good. got to visit them. It's so good. Um, and I keep quoting like, no, seriously, what is offsides? <laughs> Explain <laughs> right. to me offsides. I theoretically understand it. Although I did have a colleague who's like, do I need to get a salt and pepper shaker out? I'm like, dude, I get it. I just need like a first down line that's digital of offsides. Right. Like I just need to see this, this chart. So I love Ted Lasso. Um, a couple of years ago when the world cup was on um i noticed a group of people were watching the game at one of the interlock and dorm rooms turns out all these shakespearean actors were soccer fans and so um it was rather entertaining how they were talking about the game and furthermore they were also judging the soccer players acting skills which i thought was very appropriate so like they're like, oh man, you're not really in pain. Like try to act this one up if you're gonna like add more stoppage time. Um, So I learned a little bit from that. And my spouse also follows um, Siri Ah. Um, So Mm -hmm. I've decided to follow a Korean player who plays for uh, the Premier League uh, Tottenham. And I'm trying to understand it, but um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a goal. Um, I haven't given it up yet and it's July, so. yeah. We're going to see how well, that goes. Soccer, uh, I I always get really excited about the men's and women's national team. So yes. if it's World Cup or or the Olympics, like I get really excited for that. That's always a lot of fun. But um, I went to my first MLS game. Now, I lived in Seattle for a few years, and I should have gone to a Sounders game. And just It was grad school, and it, it didn't happen, right? Oh, I right? feel you. Yep. Mm-hmm. But we were in uh, Portland uh, two summers ago, and we went and saw the Portland Timbers – uh, play the Vancouver Whitecaps, and the atmosphere was incredible. That's uh, so cool. I mean, it was just, it was one of the most fun uh, sporting events I've been to. And I think soccer and hockey are both sports that, like, you have to go to a game to kind of get it, you know? Yeah, and then once 100%. you've been, uh, it, you get, it's easy to get hooked. You know, I will have to say to you and whoever else is listening that, um, I didn't understand baseball as a child. Um, I very much listened to Vince Scully's voice because he called the Dodger games for multiple generations. Like I think so many people can say they grew up with Vince Scully calling the games. So I'd hear him call the games. I have no idea what's going on. I have no visuals. Um, 
and then I'd seen on TV and I'm like, wasn't quite understanding, but I remember I was 16 years old. It was some kind of church trip. We saw a freeway series with the Dodgers and the angels and it changed my life. I'm like, this mm. is amazing. So, uh, I had a hundred percent agree. Um, I can't wait to go to a live soccer game and, um, hopefully I can go to a live hockey game. I also hockey's also on my list of trying to understand. Yeah. For sure. Hockey and soccer have a lot of similarities. Uh, offsides. Like offsides? Is, yeah. Okay. Well, kind of, kind <laughs> of. Uh, yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this. I don't know if you'll uh, have an answer if you've been paying attention to this, but um, have you heard about the big um, controversy happening with at ESPN over the last 48 hours? No. So there's a, a reporter, uh, um, African-American female reporter named Maria Taylor, okay. who has been kind of, uh, I would say is um, rising higher up and higher up and higher up at ESPN. Uh, and there's another white female reporter named Rachel Nichols, who mm -hmm. you, you may have seen, she does a whole bunch of NBA coverage has been around for a long time. Well, a uh, um, recording leaked the other day of Rachel Nichols basically saying, that if Maria Taylor started getting, I don't, I don't know exactly what it was. I think if she started covering the NBA finals instead of Rachel Nichols, it would be because ESPN wanted to play the diversity hire or something like that. And it was real, like not good at all. Uh, and uh, anyway, so uh, that's, it's been a big, big hullabaloo if you will uh i will look this up later also oh man <laughs> it wasn't... don't say these things when you could be recorded or well ever and <laughs> the, the thing that or ever yeah or ever the thing about it was that like it was strange because 30 years ago 20 years whatever it was that rachel nichols started at espn there were probably a lot of men saying the exact same thing about her. 100%. And I yep. just don't understand how she, I just don't understand how you go that route when you've, you basically were in the exact same spot, right? Trying to kind of claw your way up in this company and. I mean, yes. Also, there have been instances of it where um, sometimes I joke where I, I go like, there are some people out there that just want to become the white men in power. Um, yeah. You're absolutely right, though, because every time I hear about this, I'm like, dude, didn't you just claw your way up? Didn't you just like, weren't you just in a position that sucked? And yeah. didn't you want to make it better for future generations? Yeah. I mean, I think that all the time. So you're not wrong. What a mess. That sucks. And that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that shows you, uh, again, how little uh, actual sports that I'm I'm watching these days because I'm just getting like what's on mainstream news, right? Like but if you it's knew on about that, like I, I don't have a child to like say, I can't keep up. I mean, and cats are really not the same thing. So yeah. Hey, uh, by the way, are you are you fostering cats right now? Do I, I is that what I remember, or did I imagine that? No, uh, you were you were not imagining that <laughs> for the last three months. Um, let's just say that one of the pandemic projects 
was to feed stray cats in our backyard because they're so cute and adorable. And, you know, if you could believe it, it actually does get cold in Texas. Um, and sure. if you'd also believe it, sometimes a whole power grid goes out when you live in Texas. Um, so we fed <laughs> the cats and one of them um, was like, you know, the cute neighbor kid who came in and like took out all the toys and ate all the food, kind of like a little mini Urkel, but this was a cat, Sam, and we called her <laughs> Sam, Sam. She would just like uh -huh. run around and play. Um, then eventually Sam, Sam got knocked up <laughs> and decided that my spouse's closet seemed like an awesome place to have her kittens. Uh -huh. So okay. that was crazy. So we fostered her and her litter of kittens. Um, she's not the best mom. I I joked and said that she had an extended spring break and she made certain life decisions. Yeah. Um, and now she's gonna stay here to feed her children. Um, and uh, she had scruffed them in the front. So we're like, Sam, don't choke hold your children. That's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But um, the kittens got old enough and I finally found homes for them and they are gone. And now Julius and Calpurnia have their house back kind of. And so we still have Sam, Sam, if anybody wants her, <laughs> you can have, she's, she's great. We just like, yeah. I thought my, my kitty ovaries are tubes are tied like that was just yeah. a lot of cats in the same place um it was a little overwhelming it was adorable it got us through the end of the semester i think when i post kitten videos but um we're getting back to normal here so yes that's my long story of what has happened during quarantine slash COVID. Uh, -huh. <laughs> mm. uh cats terrify me because uh, ah. I think they are smarter than I am and would murder me if they uh, could. Uh, I mean, I don't think they are, um, but some of them are assholes. So mm. I get it. Totally mm. fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I kind of like cats individually for small periods of time. Uh, like if, if I know that they're like, we're kind of, you know, they trust me and I trust like small, but then like, that cat that I was like petting and I thought trusted me, like I fall asleep on the couch and it's suddenly sitting on my face and uh, we no longer have that trust. You know what I mean? <laughs> Space issues. Like there was, yeah. there was a lack of consent. I, yeah. I sense like that's not uh, nice. I mean, I've never, I've never owned a cat. So I, I think it's mostly just uh, a foreign <laughs> thing to me. <laughs> Did you actually have a cat sit on your face though? Uh, I don't think quite uh, that, but they are, I mean, they're kind of, they invade your space like stealthily, you know? I mean, like True. dogs are just like in your face and it's, you know, you kind of see it coming and just exactly. like cats are, you know. That's you you know, absolutely fair. Um, one of the kittens, um, she was so cute, but like, I think she wanted to attack me. Like the kill switch swift, like clicked on. And so I go and it's like, there's Martha. And she jumps out. I'm like, that's adorable. Uh, I'm glad you're not gonna end up as big as me. That would be <laughs> yeah. terrifying. Right. You just See, want to destroy. It's size. <laughs> size is the only thing preventing them from being just murderous, right? No. So I just scoop her up. I'm like, she's so adorable. And she's like, put me down. And I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I, uh -huh. I, I felt like I needed to tell her who was boss. But every time she was just like, pounce. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh -huh. so, so yeah, you're, you're not wrong at all. All right, good. Uh, you grew up in Los Angeles, is that right? Or near Los Angeles? Yes. Uh, so uh, tell us uh, when and where you were born. Okay, so 
I was born um, in January 1981 in Los Angeles County in a city called Bellflower. And Bellflower is really close to the city Downey. And if I were to um, not exactly age myself, but um, I think older people would know that Downey, California is where the Carpenters are most famously from. Mm -hmm. So um, that's in LA County, close to the five freeway. Um, and I would say, okay, I would say probably about mm, maybe an hour away from from Disneyland, if we're gonna do the whole freeway, like figuring yeah. out Southern California type of thing. Um, and so that's where I grew up. When I was in high school, my family moved to another place in Los Angeles County uh, called Cerritos, but then I ended up going to a high school in Orange County called the Los Al um, High School of the Arts or OSHA. It is now the Orange County School of the Arts, still pronounced OSHA. So, that's kind of my background there. Um, speaking of Disneyland, yes, I did one year. I was like, Mom, Dad, can I have a combined birthday present slash Christmas present because I'm born like two weeks after Christmas. So, you know, there have been times my mom would say like, so what did you really want for Christmas? I'm like, Mom, that's not yeah. nice. But okay, yeah, how about I have a Disneyland pass? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'd say probably a very typical Southern California childhood. Um, definitely gone to the beach a few times definitely got really sunburned from the beach growing up so yeah um but yeah that's that's generally where i'm from and my it's, parents have since moved to orange county so it is so funny uh it is without fail people from california are they always give the like their location in proximity to roads and other things and it's so funny and the the skit on snl the californians is oh so <laughs> spot on in in that one way right i mean it's oh yeah ludicrous, it but no, it's so right. funny no as soon as that episode dropped like i had friends who were like dude that's totally you i'm like <laughs> no but okay you're not yeah, wrong sure. how we refer to freeways um i think a lot of it is just because the place is so big Mm -hmm. It's one of the bigger states in the union and also it's highly populated. So what we'd know as like towns and cities, um, we literally have like cities after cities, like right next to each other. Yeah. Um, in so much that the last time I was there with my spouse, he was asking me if each city had their own mayor. I'm like, yeah, cause they're, <laughs> cause they're all cities, but just to be like, okay, we're in Hawaii gardens now. Oh, we're in Anaheim now, you know, just driving through. Yeah. Um, I think it's just, it's helpful to have some kind of like location and also the freeways kind of help. Um, granted, I realize that you're probably not familiar with the California freeway yeah. system, but um, that's just kind of how I do it. And when I started driving, um, I kind of memorized like freeway, like merging exits and stuff like that. So yeah. um, once upon a time when I was in high school, I actually did work at Dodger Stadium. Oh. And uh, yeah, so I remember I'd have to take the, let's see if I remember. It was like this insane, like you had to merge four highways over. Yes. So I think I would take from Cesar Chavez um, Parkway, I think, go on the 110, merge on to, no, no, get on the five, merge on to the 110 really fast, go to the 605, no, 105 to the 605 to the 91. Got it. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Uh, I know uh, very little. I know that, uh, so I did my, my master's at a summer program in LA, Cal State LA. Oh, so cool. I, my last two summers I lived on campus, which was actually great, like as far as the classes and whatnot. And I just was busy and didn't venture far from campus, maybe like Pasadena a little bit. But the first summer, my brother was living uh, like a block from Hollywood Boulevard uh, mm. in uh, in I think in like little Armenia and I know exactly where that is and so That's I was awesome. living in his apartment and then driving uh, to Cal State LA uh, which was sometimes okay and sometimes horrendous um, but so that that's kind of the extent of my my no, LA driving is for that. your for the listeners I am like when you said Hollywood Boulevard and Little Armenia, and then when you said sometimes it was okay, and then I just start shaking my head no because, <laughs> woof, especially on well, Hollywood Boulevard, it's just yeah. Rough. So the <laughs> for the the driving was not bad because I think I was just on the one hundred and one uh, yeah. for most of that stretch, and and so that wasn't always so bad, but it was parking around my brother's apartment. Yes, that I, I would just I mean there were days where I'd spend an hour and a half, two hours just circling blocks because you'd get you know you'd circle circle and kind of the circles would get further out and then you realize you're so far away that it's not worth it to park there you know so then you kind of start circling back in and then there's like street cleaning and then it, it was just a anyway. if it makes you feel better and you can probably tell your brother this so i used to spend a lot of time in los Feliz before it got gentrified which is kind of around that area like hollywood boulevard and whatnot i understand completely the parking i remember i would wait for a post office to close and then quickly like park in that lot but then it would quickly fill up and then they're you know talk about street cleaning whatever so once um i decided stupidly i was an undergraduate i was like i'm just gonna park at the rite aid parking lot and spend the night at this person i'm dating's place and my car got towed mm. and they only took cash mm -hmm. and i really wanted to audit that place so badly pretty mm -hmm. sure they were not nice so um <laughs> i know exactly Oh my god! I'm like thinking about trying to find parking just to like go to a movie theater, like a tiny yeah. or a tiny Japanese restaurant. Oh my god, it's a nightmare, and yeah. I'm like stressing about it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it was it was really foreign to me because I I had I learned to drive in Las Vegas, and that's where mm -hmm. I did. Uh, I was living there at the time, and then just doing summers in LA. And in Vegas um, at the time, parking was free everywhere. I mean, all the casinos wow. had their parking garages and they charge for them now, but it used to be free. And so, uh, you know, the way the city, because Vegas built up quickly, but only recently. And so it expanded with mm. big wide roads and lots of parking everywhere, and, yep. you know, parking garages where they needed to be. And so the opposite of uh, other big cities. So it was just like, I, I mean, I never, I don't think I parallel parked in Las Vegas ever. That's and then amazing. it was like, living right by Hollywood Boulevard and was like, oh, I oh mean, God. I was panic, no, panic. No, easily, no, I uh, I have to admit, I think I got better at parallel parking, but I've also gotten parking tickets. And no, I, I, I know yeah. exactly what you went through. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, tell me uh, your parents' names. Ah, so my dad's name is Chris, spelled K-R-I-S, and my mom's name is Minsuk. And what uh, do they do or did they do uh, when you were growing up? 
Sure. So my dad um, actually was an electrical engineer and he worked at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power in downtown Los Angeles. Um, for all of you music nerds out there, that building is directly across the street from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which is where the LA Phil had their home. And those like infamous like four like fountains that were just, you see them in movies and everywhere. Um, so my dad did this and he's retired now. Uh, my mom was a stay at home mom, but in her past life, um, in Korea and a little bit when she was, uh, when she immigrated to this country was, uh, she was an artist and specifically a sculptor. So, Ooh. um, I actually recently saw photographs of some of my mom's artwork that she couldn't bring with her because, you know, they're just kind of large yeah. objects and whatnot, but, um, I always knew that my mom drew really well, and I think she's picking up drawing again, which is good. Um, and I will have to say that one thing I didn't realize was a parallel, but I realize is now is that she's a fantastic gardener. And mm. so it's kind of like she's applying kind of using the medium of succulents since she has like the, this amazing succulent garden and she's like been able to successfully keep it going. Um, and that's kind of her new medium now. So nice. That's what my mom does. And uh, were they musical? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, Actually, um, um, it's a funny story. Um, I know that I think a good reason why I ended up um, studying the piano and learning the violin for a very hot second, like for six months when I was six years old and I said, we're done because I'd have to practice. <laughs> Um, uh -huh. is that yes, I am of Korean descent and there's a, you know, this cultural thing where you learn to play the piano or violin or both. Um, so, uh, I think that's part of the reason why I started. Um, I also was super drawn to the piano. Um, but also my mom claimed that she was absolutely tone deaf. And I'm hmm. like, no, come on. You can like at least match pitch. She's like, nope, I was terrible. And turns out my mom had a whole bunch of artist friends. And they had like a psychedelic Korean band that they like had some recordings. Like, nice. I need to find the tape. I hope I didn't lose it because it's it's just, it sounds like far out Korean music. Like, definitely seventies. Nice. Definitely some substances were either smoked or inhaled. <laughs> yeah. Probably smoked because it's Korea. Um, and my mom tells of a story where um, they were like, dude, just come on and so get on stage. And she's like, no, no. And they're like, dude, you can sing. And so my mom went up on stage and then she said the whole band just like stopped and stared at her. I'm like, oh, no. And she's like, mm. yeah, that was not great. So I think mm -hmm. she never, ever wanted her children to experience that. Yeah. <laughs> and so we started lessons. <laughs> uh-huh. Did you have a, you said you were drawn to the piano. Did, was there a piano in the house? Um, not at first. I remember growing up in church and like, they'd have like a pianist mm. there and I just like watched the pianist like play songs. And I was fascinated about how like the movements of like the fingers kind of correlated with the sounds. Yeah. Um, and I also remember finding a piano at someone's party and I was like, I'm going to play this song right now. And I remember I, I played middle C and G because that's where like the hinges are. And I was just pressing the notes <laughs> and I'm like, this does not sound like the song. Like I announced it to everybody. I'm like, I'm going to play this song. Uh -huh. And I was like, ding. <laughs> 
ding. And I was like, how is this not working? It was very confusing to me. So yeah. um, eventually I think some friends talked to my parents and they're like, like Jennifer seems really fascinated with the piano. And like, I seriously, I would like stare at people at, at their fingers yeah. and just like, I don't know. I think it was like, can you imagine a five-year-old just like staring at your right hand? <laughs> I mean, yeah, kids, <laughs> kids are weird. Yeah, it's weird. So, <laughs> so that's uh, what that... I did. So eventually, they got a piano, and and I started piano lessons when I was six. Nice. Yeah. Um, what? Um, so obviously, you you heard music in church, and 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 that was part of an inspiration, at least to get into the piano. What other kinds of music was there? Other music at home? Did your parents listen to music? Um. Yeah. So. Um, my dad actually had a small collection of classical music, but it was um, the Wendy Carlos slash Emerson Lake and Palmer kind, which is kind of cool. Yeah. My first exposure to Bach was through Wendy Carlos's uh, Switched On Bach album. Okay. Um, and I remember when I heard acoustic Bach for the first time, I was, and I thought it sounded familiar, and I believe I was listening to Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring, and I was like, Dad, what's this? And he's like, it's Bach. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, it doesn't sound like Bach. And my dad's like, well, it is. It's just they're playing it with traditional instruments and not with mm. the synthesizer. And I think I said, that's dumb because I really <laughs> like the colors yeah. <laughs> that were associated with um, with the Moog synthesizer. Um, my dad also had like um, a lot of recordings of, of Aaron Copeland's music of like Rodeo and Appalachian Spring, which I really loved. Um, and I think he had, there's this one pianist and I forgot his name, but had some very showy like Liszt and Chopin stuff, listening to stuff. So um, there was that. And I would also say that one recording that, or one album that really got me fascinated about music was, um, I think Big Bird Discovers the Orchestra. So if anybody can find a recording on YouTube somewhere where Big Bird plays a detective because the orchestra went missing <laughs> and has to go find the instruments, I'd, it'd be much appreciative but I thought that was I mean, really cool. I'll look for that because I'm a big, <laughs> a big Muppets fan and we're on a big Sesame Street kick in the house right now. Oh my gosh. So. I remember as a kid, I thought this line was funny. So uh, Big Bird start, started off saying, there was an interesting case. It was in the olden days, a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, that's not the <laughs> olden days. Um, and my dad's like, that was a joke. And I'm like, huh. <laughs> that was probably the age where I think I just discovered the big bird identified as a, as a, as a male. So I don't know, uh -huh. um, but I, but I, um, I love it. Like, you know, the clarinet does something, some arpeggiations, you know, okay. um, I remember hearing the Dvorak nine symphony because they did an excerpt of the oboe. And I'm like, I remember falling in love with the oboe. I'm like, I love the oboe. It's so great. Um, so yes, um, I think you'd love it. And the Muppets are awesome. I mean, 100%. for sure. Uh, so, okay, so you started playing piano. Uh, were you good quickly? Was it something that came easily to you? Did you have to work really hard? No, I, it, it came to me pretty easily. It was a really <laughs> good sight reader, um, much to like, the chagrin of my mom, I was really good at like not practicing because I'd figure out 
patterns really quickly. And so, um, yeah, this is why I feel like I was kind of like a lazy pianist. Like, and you know, I have to give myself credit. I didn't exactly know how to practice. I think when we first start out, like, we're like, okay, scales, what's the point of them? Or arpeggios, what's the point of them? Um, but I had a knack for it. And um, eventually, I remember my dad had a friend who is a composer also um, at church or something like that, and was telling me about like, how maybe one of these days I can like listen to things on the radio and be able to play it back, but I need to mm. practice. So I think he was like recruiting this friend to be like, okay, you need to like sit down and you need yeah. to like work at this. It might be like easy for you right now, but you know, you have a talent and it'd be great if you can like develop your skills. And so I think um, this, this friend of my dad and my mom were like, all right, you can do some really cool stuff. And I remember he like, change something on a synthesizer to like sound like a soap opera. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And uh, that was really cool. Um, I didn't think I would be a composer per se. I was yeah. just like, whoa, I don't know if I could like make up music, but I can just play around with the special effects sounds on the, on the synth. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, no, it was something I think I had a knack for, uh, probably not so much discipline, but I did like the instrument and I liked playing music. You know, uh, I was <laughs> also like, it came pretty easily to me. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't, I did almost never practiced. And my piano teacher, Mrs. Bates was this lovely, sweet little old lady who would like mm -hmm. give me little stickers when I finished songs <laughs> yep, and, you know, uh -huh. um, and uh, she always thought that I was practicing. Right, because I could play like whatever she'd give me for the oh, week. Yeah. I could come back and play, but I wouldn't play. And I did not have someone to like get my ass in gear and it never, so I never actually got very skilled at the piano. Oh. Like it just kind of faded and I'm serviceable. Like I can, uh, I mean, I could never accompany anybody in a performance, but I can like fudge my way through music, right? But uh, because I never had anybody going, like you actually need to practice. Uh, they all just kind of were like, yeah, you're, you're pretty good. And I thought, all right, well, oh my yeah. God. Like, well, my mom was mean. I mean, she's coming from a good place. So let me tell you yeah. a story. I remember once my mom got so fed up that I was not practicing. She said, if you do not practice enough, you will need to pay for your own piano lesson. So I had like, um, I think I did some chores and I had some like dollar bills. And so that was the deal. And I remember like, kind of rolling my eyes, probably going like, I know this, it's fine. My mom's like, nope, you are you are paying Mrs. Shindell, also another old lady, you know, really sweet, also played organ. All right, come time for my lesson. It was an awesome lesson. We were having a great time. I was nailing everything and, you know, got to play the duets. It was awesome. And then my mom gives me this look and it was like, all right, now pay her. And I wanted to be like, oh my God, like, why are you doing this to me, mom? Yeah. Um, but no, she, um, so I like stuck out my hand and paid the lesson and Mrs. Shindell was like, what is this? I said, my mom says I didn't practice, so I have to pay for my <laughs> piano lesson. It was so mortifying. And then my piano teacher was like, what? And it was just bad. It was like, mm. she just like took the money and then just like left because she's super disappointed. But I was like, mom, that was like one of the best lessons I've ever had. Why'd you have to mm. ruin it?
So. But evidently it's stuck with you, so... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I for can, better or worse. I can play. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so then you get into high school. Were you still playing piano? Did you play other instruments? Did you sing? What was the musical activity like then? Yeah, so uh, in middle school, um, I also did band. Um, I ended up picking the flute because I didn't understand what transposing instruments were. It started with the horn, didn't realize that it sounds a perfect fifth below. So I'm like squishing my sad six-year-old or sixth grade embouchure. And yeah. I, I didn't understand. It didn't make sense. I was like, piano doesn't transpose. Piano, you don't have to tune either. So I did the flute. Um, I also, um, yeah, I was able to, um, I think the band slash choir director was like, we can have you sing in choir. And if you don't mind, um, do you want to play the piano for us? So I did. So I did. I was singing in the choir and played the piano. Which is like great, but also awful. You know, like, yeah, it, in it hindsight, is, yeah. It is in some ways that's a wonderful thing to do because it, it uh, like spotlights a student and you're saying you're really good at this. And what, but it also like takes away from kids just being able to sing, you know, and like, be special for that also. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I don't know. You may have had a really, really wonderful experience with it, but I, I always, that makes no, me. I, I get it. I, if this, if this makes you feel any better, I still had opportunities to sing. Yeah. Actually, I'd say it's probably about half and half or um, I think probably once I really wanted the piano solo for Mariah Carey's hero arrangement for trouble voices, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that was fun. Um, I did, you know, um, I see where you're coming from. Um, cause I did it at my church too. Like I noticed that they had a pianist who just didn't show up because it was basically a volunteer position. And so I was just able to hop on. Um, it really strengthened my musicianship skills, yeah. but there were times in my childhood where I was like, I just want to be with my friends. Um, yeah. I will say for the record, I did not feel that in my middle school experience, surprisingly. Um, because I did sing, um, and uh, I did in high school do one year of jazz choir. Well, yeah, yeah. I did. So well, why um, did own it? Why <laughs> do you say it like that? Like that's great. Because like, yeah, I should own it. I should be like, yeah, I listened to a lot of jazz standards, and I, I did it for one year. Um, I have to admit, when I transferred high school, my mom was like, I still want you to sing in choir, so I went to a new school at the, you know, the performing arts high school and low style high had a show choir and it was at zero period. My mom's like, I still want you to sing. And I'm like, okay. So I tried it and show choir is not the same as jazz choir. And I may have cried after that first day of school and dropped out. <laughs> uh, I, there are assuredly videos of me somewhere in the world in sequins dancing That's in awesome. the show choir, but That's awesome. uh, I went, my high school, uh, our show choir was not like the hardcore, like competitive, serious, crazy kind of show choir. I say that with all love and respect to all anybody who Loved might be listening all. who yep. loves show <laughs> choir. Uh, you know, I got into an argument with somebody uh, in Ohio, actually, who is <laughs> now a very good friend, but we were out for drinks uh, in. Um, uh, uh, in Columbus, mm -hmm. we were at the like summer conference, right? The OCDA right. Mm -hmm. summer mm -hmm. conference, I think it must've been. And, uh, 
we got into an argument about Shoko and I won't bring up what the sides were or anything, but like we were at Bar Louie on a patio, like shouting at each other. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and I had, I, it was the first time I'd met him. Oh uh, no. <laughs> was, yeah. Anyway, we, we are good friends now uh, and have, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, again, for me at the time, you know, going from everybody had their own microphone, listening to blend, listening to vowels, and then having to do choreography. Also, like the way they were teaching the music was, um, I didn't want to say I was bored, but yeah, I was, I was a sight reader and sure. I took pride in just like knowing the lines. And so like, you know, the, the choir teacher was like playing out the lines as you do. And I'm just yeah. like bored. It's zero period. I know no one there. Like it, it was, it was just, you know, first day of school, new school district, no, no one type of vibe. So yeah. anyways, um, I ended up dropping choir that sure. day and uh, didn't really pick up singing until college. So uh, when uh, along the way, did you decide you were going to major in music or become a composer what was the like when did that happen uh i think it was a process because um i didn't like i knew about majoring in music but i remember as a high schooler i didn't exactly understand that concept do you know what i'm saying because yeah. like um when you're trained as a pianist you're not necessarily trained as a collaborative pianist, um, even though I literally was one since like, yeah, maybe I was 10 or 11. Right. And I'm, I used to be really good at it. Had I known that that was a way to go, I mean, maybe I would have stuck with piano. Um, um, I was toying with the idea of other majors, but I wasn't really sure what they would be, but I did really like music and, um, I, I really wanted to go all the way with it. Like I, I wanted to get my doctorate because I was like, I want to do all the school because I will know everything and I'll make all the money, which is hilarious because hilarious, um, hilarious. Yeah. Um, you know, but <laughs> I was young and ambitious back then. So um, for a while, I thought I would be um, getting my doctorate in piano performance um, at the high school I went to. I quote unquote specialized in piano. Um, still didn't like to practice, but I practiced more because I figured I got into the school, um, took side classes, um, in music theory and piano pedagogy and, uh, piano lit. So I've actually, wow. yeah, I've known those things. I was like, oh, I can start my own business, you know? Um, but I was actually, um, asked to take a composition class and I thought it would always be cool to, um, write music for films. I, I never thought mm. I had original ideas. Um, the idea of a composer or living composer was a strange concept as a pianist. There's just so much good lit that we have that we would never be able to play it in our lifetimes to give an analogy. Yeah. Um, so I actually thought all the music was written and I had no concept of what new music was. Um, and it wasn't until the, um, orchestra teacher, he also taught, um, orchestral literature, um, introduced me to some really awesome shit. Like I had no idea. There was just some like new music being written. Um, he actually, uh, I can't believe this. Um, uh, we went to LA Phil concerts. He had Steven Stuckey come by 
our high school and talk to us. Um, And once we went to a rehearsal at the LA Phil um, with Essa Pekka Solomon conducting, and there's a picture on my Facebook someplace. It's like baby Jen Jolly with her friends and Essa Pekka Solomon and John Adams. They were doing a rehearsal of even sentimental music. Um, So I just thought that was really cool. And I was like, oh, I didn't know I can write music. And if I have a storyline to follow, then I can definitely write music to that. I just can't abstractly come up with music myself. And so um, I thought I would like to write music for films. And I knew that USC had a program that was called Film Scoring Emphasis. It's now Screen Scoring. But um, I would say probably my, my sophomore, junior year of high school, I was like, I think I can be a composer and I wouldn't have to practice piano, but I can like, <laughs> I can noodle because yeah. I've been noodling my whole life on the piano. Yeah. I always added notes to things. Like in hindsight, I'm like, dude, that was composing. I just, yeah. again, I had no idea. I would noodle. I would add tertian harmonies to everything because I was listening to jazz. Um, I would add different rhythms because um, I would get, you know, I don't want to say I get bored, but I was a teenager. Okay. So like, I I just added and arranged things and I loved arranging things and you know that that's like the the gateway drug right there to composing. Yeah. So that's kind of where I was like I think you know I I remember telling myself if I get into USC and the film scoring program um then I'm totally going to do it. If I don't then maybe I'll be piano performance. So Yeah. I got in. I don't know how that happened because there's no way I'd get into USC's program now. It's so competitive, but uh Yeah. But I got in and uh, I, I, you know, I just really liked composing music. That's super cool. You said two, two things in the last few minutes that I, I thought are, I think are so important. One was about um, not being trained in collaborative piano as a, as a piano player. And uh, I think about how many young piano players there are who learn how to play really well, but who have never accompanied anybody, yep. or if they have, it is uh, not not collaborative. <laughs> you know, no, that they're true. accompanying yeah. something, but not in a way that is where there's any give and take or where there's a lot of ownership felt by that young pianist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I, I just think about, you know, I've seen a lot of students come into the university level as piano majors who then have to play for other people and are just lost. And I've worked as a, as a conductor, right? I've worked Mm -hmm. with piano players who are very adept at the instrument, Mm -hmm. but who I have no desire to have them anywhere near my ensemble Mm -hmm. because they, they just, they, they don't have that skill set. Um, It's true. and And, and I think there's just such a mentality where it's like, even at the undergrad level, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because again, I'm not like I'm not a pianist. I'm not a professor, a piano professor. But you may have one or two classes. Admittedly, in my high school, I think my piano teacher at the time, uh, Dr. Stephen Cook, with us was like, "You're going to accompany this violist." And he actually pulled the violist aside and said, "Okay, I want you to mess up here, and I want you to mess up here." So we actually talked about accompanying that i think we also learned a little excerpt from the magic flute so we'd have to sing along and do that but other than that one experience i can't think of any time formally my piano education 
of how to be a collaborative pianist. Yeah. They train you to be a solo pianist. I mean, I think universities are doing more and more of it, but some of it is just out of need, right? It's because there aren't enough piano players on every campus. And so it has to happen. But I, I, I mean, I'm thinking even before that, you know, as, as kids are growing up learning to play piano in middle school, early high school, that there, there, there has to be some kind of opportunity to present that, right? That just conceptually, even that oh, that's a thing to do. Exactly. No, I 100% agree. And, you know, back to our conversation of like, I'd occasionally play for my middle school choir, and I'd also like play for my church, if it weren't for those experiences, I don't know if I'd be an adept musician, to be honest. Um, and yeah, like, I, I think there needs to be that balance. Again, there were a couple times where I was like, oh, I wish I could like be with my friends, you know, because I was yeah. so young. Um, but I really think there needs to be more like chamber playing that, you know, now that I think about it, it's probably having to do with, you know, who writes for younger players? Like there are books, there are piano books of like young piano pieces, uh, piano pieces for young children and young pieces for different instrument types, but maybe not together. And if a pianist is playing in a duet, it's usually with their teacher to help accompany them. Yeah. You know, it's just not the same. Um, yeah. I think there needs to be more opportunities for that. Yeah. The other thing that you uh, mentioned that I think is so important and I, 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 in my experience, I just don't think happens enough is that you were taught about composers. You were fortunate enough to meet some composers, but like shown that there are composers who are real people who like have a personality and have like that, that influences their music. And that's part of what we're doing here. Right. But, right. you know, I, I mean, I think all through high school, uh, you know, up until I got to the university level. And even then at the beginning of, of uh, undergrad, I think the only two people that I knew were composers who were living mm -hmm. were Moses Hogan and mm -hmm. Eric Whitaker. Right. And I, I, I only knew Moses Hogan because we sang one of his pieces at an ACDA conference that I was singing in and he was in the audience. This would have That's been awesome. uh, 1998. Oh man. So I, I so knew cool. that. Uh, and my high school choir director uh, was good friends in college with Eric Whitaker. Mm -hmm. And so I knew him only because she knew him, but I, I still never really knew anything about him or who mm -hmm. he was. You know, like mm -hmm. I knew he was a person that existed. Mm -hmm. um, but I, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been in. Uh, I'll say this, and I, you know, I don't want to offend anybody who is a hardworking music educator, but I've been in classrooms uh, where I'll say, uh, you know, uh, who wrote this piece, you know, to the to the ensemble, and they have no idea, mm -hmm. and that just seems like such a crucial piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Um, and so, not just for students being able to learn that they could be composers, but just like understanding music in general like i think we can we can should be doing more to um make the composers seem like real people because they are in fact uh, yeah i mean last time people. i checked i'm a real person yeah. <laughs> with wants and needs for things like beverages and mm -hmm. sleep at night mm -hmm. um you know what i actually um 
I actually don't fault these music educators because um, I don't think we were taught. Like there's such an abstraction between a living, breathing composer and the composer's work. Like this is probably a 19th century thing of like putting the composer up on a pedestal, saying that they're geniuses. I say, stop that, stop it. We are real people and you can get to know us. And I think it's easier to get to know us uh, within range, sorry, like I'm a child of the 80s, so stranger danger, just like be nice and introduce yourself first. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I remember as a, as a kid, like, you know, we'd see a composer's name and we'd be like, okay, the person wrote it, but that in itself is an abstraction. What does that mean to write music? You know, yeah. unless you've like actually seen it happen and we normally don't see composers write music in real time, although I guess Twitch is a thing now, but you know, um, I, I agree with you. I think that we just need to realize that the, we are normal people. And um, even this concept of genius is a fallacy because, you know, we creatives like thrive on having conversations with people and, you know, working together as an ensemble. I think that's why I love being com a composer is because I like creating music with other people and having yeah. discussions about that. So, um, in a way, like our culture had generated, there was this tradition of like, you know, unless you really know who the big name pedestal composer is, like, you won't know who they are. And they'll just have like a first initial and a last name. And it's like, mm, okay. And yeah, you know, there's just such an abstraction from that. And that kind of makes me sad. So yeah. And now we can like talk to your students and zoom in. It's kind of great. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, we're going to fast forward a little bit because I want to talk uh, actually about your music. Um, and uh, so uh, we're going to talk, I think, just about, just, we're going to talk about, I think, three of your uh, choral works. And uh, I am fortunate uh, because I've been able to uh, teach two of them. Uh, and so I'm, so I'm really excited to talk about this. Uh, let's start with prisoner of conscience which is uh just i was just i was listening to it today and i just love it oh my God, so much i love it so much uh can you uh tell our listeners a little bit about uh the piece yes prisoner of conscience is a multi-movement i would say song cycle or oratorial i'll have you all decide what you call it it's about the arrest and trial of the punk band Pussy Riot, which is why we had our Russian Imperial Stout earlier That's on right. this podcast. That's right. um, um, at the time, my friends Quince Ensemble uh, were asking me if I could write them a piece. And this was in 2015. Um, Pussy Riot first made the news um, when they staged their protests in 2012. So we were a little, we were a little past that point. It was kind of in our faint memory. Um, and so, uh, Liz Pierce was like, Jen, can you write us a piece? Um, maybe make it, you know, seven to nine minutes long, nothing too long. You know, we only have so much money and I'm like, that's fine. You guys are amazing. I'm so glad that my friend John Sokol introduced me to you all in Bowling Green. So we're cool. Um, I messaged my librettist Kendall a, and I said, Hey, Quince wants to do a piece. And she's like, Pussy Riot Song Cycle. I'm like, what? That is like weapons grades awesome. Like, let me talk to Liz Pierce about this. I said, Liz, 
Pussy Riot song cycle. <laughs> She's like, that's amazing. Um, and I thought that worked out perfectly because, you know, in having a conversation with them, I know what they're able to do. They they have amazing voices, amazing instruments. They're willing to do whatever. Um, one thing that I found interesting about some requests were they do like singing words. They're not opposed to using the voice as an instrument, but they're singers and they like to tell yeah. stories. And that's kind of how they got into it. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. And I respect that. And that they're like, we're also singers. We like singing in other languages. And my first thought was like, okay, that's great. Although I only speak English. I'm probably going to set English, but I thought this Pussy Riot sounds, uh, song cycle was kind of perfect because yeah. um, for those who will take the time to listen, there's actually a bit where they do speak in Russian and we had to figure out who had the best Russian diction coaches yeah. <laughs> when they were doing that. So um, it's an eight movements with text from the actual statements of the trial in between. So I never thought I would write a super long piece, but let's just say it is longer than seven to nine minutes. Yes. Yes. But, uh, okay. I love the piece. I love everything about the piece. Um, I love that it feels, I mean, it is a song cycle of sorts. So there are lots of different uh, feels within the piece. I almost don't even know where to begin, but, uh, <laughs> well, I, I kind of do know where to begin. The piece has the word fuck in it so many times. <laughs> and that in and of itself is reason enough for me to want to program it over <laughs> and over and over again. We've talked about it on this podcast several times, why there is not more, um, aggressive language in choral music. I think it is sorely missing and it is perfect. Can I just say, I will say I, as, as I don't really sing anymore, but I still sing my own stuff. I think that fuck is actually a very satisfactory uh, word to sing because you have that really sharp fricative and that plosive at the uh -huh. end. And the uh vowel is actually not a weird vowel. Like it just, seems so satisfying but i mean it's, you tell it's, me oh no it's a great word it's a great word <laughs> but uh i uh anybody who's listened to the previous episodes of this knows that i think sometimes choir music just insists on being like pretty or whatever the that means and it uh uh can get a little boring and monotonous in the texts that it chooses and the way that it approaches them, even if they're great texts, mm -hmm. it can be the most beautiful poetry. Uh, but, you know, when you set it a hundred different times, it just, it loses, uh, it, no matter how good the setting is, uh, it loses something. And I think sometimes that there's this um, idea that certain poems will like stand the test of time and that's why we use them and i love that this piece uh even though i i do think it has legs right that it, it applies to things that aren't just you know uh pussy riot or aren't just this small piece of time and and can uh relate to other situations it is about a very specific moment in time right yes. Uh, uh, yes. um and, and i think that that's awesome that it you know it just it addresses this kind of singular idea um, yes um i will also say that um 
because I was writing this in 2015, I just didn't know if it would have legs because I was like, oh, people have already forgotten about Pussy Riot. But I realized one timeless thing about it is you're talking about freedom of speech, which I hate to say is always going to be relevant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which you know surprised me in you know many forms who knew that i would be worried about freedom of speech like i was i'm thinking about actually like taiwan and china right now and i'm just like oh my gosh this is just really scary stuff and that you know our our fellow humans are are going through this and so um yeah i just wanted to add that just because i didn't think this piece would still be talked about. I mean, I'm very proud of it. Like I, as um, a composer, I, I feel like I was flexing my muscles. I'm like, I am a good composer. I can write good music for for choral voices. Um, but I just didn't know like if anybody would still be listening, but um, I'm, I'm very thankful that Brad, you still listen and that it is still relevant today. It is, uh, it's super cool. Let me, <laughs> let me ask you, uh where did the reggae vibe come from so there is um i'm trying to remember the name so when i was working with my librettist um the good news is that my librettist studied music not formally hmm. in college but took piano lessons and could read music and actually of one of her sisters uh, actually went into vocal performance. So I can have a dialogue with them. And I said, okay, great. Pussy Riot song cycle. How many movements are you thinking of? Because clearly this, this writer friend of mine had an idea already. And she's like, eight. I'm like, okay. I wasn't thinking of an even number. Um, I said, I tell you what, here's what I was thinking text-wise. It is definitely a punk piece. I want to alternate these punk pieces with church-like music because Pussy mm. Riot was arrested in a church when they were making their, their music video. So that's why you have like your up-tempo, lot of fucks, you know, not very yeah. melodic, but it has that drive to it as much as you can with an acapella voice and then some hat tips to, to motets and whatnot. Plus I really love motets and they seem really fun to sing. Yeah. Um, so back to your reggae question. Um, at the time, um, there was a, um, I think the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I think it was Trayvon Martin. I can't, the one in St. Louis. It was, it was absolutely terrible. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of a Black Lives Movement vibe in there. And my librettist was, I want to write a movement called Police and Thieves. Mm. So The Clash has done a track called Police and Thieves, um, which is actually a cover of a reggae song by Junior Marvin called Police and Thieves. So it's basically like all this violence and the man and like, you know, who, who's bad or good type of thing. So hence yeah. the reggae. Um, at first, when I got the first draft of the lyrics, I thought it was probably a little bit too close to the Junior Marvin version. But um, with the Black Lives Movement and also the history of punk music via The Clash and also the reggae police and thieves, I thought it was appropriate. Plus, um, I remember as an undergraduate, I actually went to a performance of uh, William Bolcom's uh, Songs of Innocence and Experience with like this big ass ensemble of like choir and like 
pop singer and folk singer and, and orchestra. And I remember he ends that piece, um, the, uh, the human form divine as a reggae, uh, because reggae sound up-tempo, but are also sad and kind of like, what's the word? They, they kind of give commentary actually mm. of like what's going on. And so that's why you have a little bit of a reggae vibe. Um, it's very interesting. I'm glad you thought it was reggae. Some people are like, oh, it's doo-wop. And I'm like, ah, no, it's because it's trying to be, you know, yeah. it's, it's acapella women singing. And uh, Liz does her best to do like the, the bass line as, as low yeah. as she can. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like my hat tip to The Clash and Junior Marvin. Nice. Yeah. When my singers were rehearsing it, we talked a lot about that reggae chop that like mm -hmm. that it, it actually kind of hits hard, um, but it is, it, it, it's so interesting because it is it's so different musically from the pieces around it that's true uh, you know the the vibe is so different but but what you were just saying is um reggae if you're not paying attention feels happy all the time Correct. right if you just kind of like you hear it in the distance and you don't really know what's going on it it, it has a vibe that to most of us i think feels happy or joyful or you know, kind of laid back, um, but there's so much more depth to the music as a as an art form. But yep. then, just within every piece, right? There's there there's um, a, a lot of subtext, yes. and uh, so I, I thought that 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 was a, a cool way to set uh, this um, you know broader text to have that kind of. Uh, in the middle of it, so. Thanks, and I was also thinking with, again, treble voices, which are stereotypically like heard as angelic, and actually mm -hmm. Quince was like, look, we do sound pretty, but we can do other things. I think they were pretty much saying like, we'd love to explore what our voices can do. Yeah. Because, you know, yes, we sound angelic and we can sound angelic, but we've been sounding angelic all the time. Yeah. You know, it gets a little monotonous. Uh, they are awesome. I love yes. them. Uh, and we should say, uh, if people are interested, they can find the score online. Uh, although I know you're revamping your website at the I moment. I am revamping my website. So huh? it will be up. Um, I do have an issue page. So I S S U U.com, you know, please, I'm happy to have you all look at the score. It's totally fine. And, uh, the piece is recorded on Quince's album, I, uh, which I believe is titled Motherland. It is. Uh, and so you can find that on Spotify or, uh, I'm sure wherever music is sold and streamed. Exactly. Uh, I love that piece. I could, I, I mean, I very legitimately could ask you a million different questions about that piece of music. I think, uh, you know, we were just talking about, uh, the, um, the fallacy of genius in in artistry but that piece it's kind of genius jen okay, it's kind you. of genius and i, I love it i think it's you. awesome thank you i will also say i had a remarkable librettist and a libretto yes um, uh which, kendall uh, I, I mean yes for it, real it's, um the text is amazing stellar so um it was definitely a team effort and i say this just because um, and I'm probably saying this because I've had to tell my students this many times. You have to spend a lot of time finding a good text. Mm -hmm. You don't say like, I want to write a choral piece and you just dive into it. Like you need to read and read and, and speak the text and just really understand it and hear how it sounds before you dive. Yeah. In. So 
mega, mega props and kudos to Kendall because it's hers too. 100%, 100%. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Drei Bricken yes. or uh, Three Bridges, yeah? And uh-huh. uh, that is, I, I also love that piece, although that took me a little bit longer to fall in love with uh, than Prisoner. Prisoner, I was like, got it, uh, got awesome. It. Uh, uh, the uh, Dry Brooken was not immediately my favorite piece. Uh, although I, 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 I do love it. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the genesis of that piece and, um, you know, what it's all about. Yeah, so um, I was kind of randomly commissioned by the Contemporary Arts Center in Cincinnati to come up with a piece slash performance for one of their galas. It was like for a fundraiser. Um, I didn't quite understand what that meant. I mean, I know what a, a gala is um, and I know what a fundraiser is, but normally as a composer, if somebody asks me to write a piece, it's like I write a piece for a specific ensemble. So um, it was interesting because the year before they had some kind of like band with dancing and I'm I'm not that. Like I'm not, you know, I, I don't like whip up tunes for dance, although that would be fun, I'm sure, later on in my life. <laughs> but um so I wasn't quite sure what exactly to do. Um but I didn't want to say no. I thought this was a great opportunity. I love the CAC. Um it's the Contemporary Arts Center in downtown Cincinnati. I love the building. Um it sounded like a lot of fun, um, but I didn't know if there were like, you know, like, what do you, what do you write for a gala really? Right. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. Um, sure. Something, <laughs> there was a part of me that, um, you know, cause I did go to USC. I was like, do I look to Morton Lauritsen because people really like his music and this sure. is for a fundraiser and, you know, D. Ray Tone got him like, a little zippy car with a license plate. I don't know. Like I just no, but yeah. seriously, he had no, a sports I, car with D A R A T O N. It's uh-huh. nuts. Um, uh-huh. But anyway, so I just I just didn't know what exactly I'd be writing. Um, and was working with Kendall. Um, this is actually before a Prisoner of Conscious Peace, mm-hmm. and um, we were brainstorming, and we're like, okay, let's make it about Cincinnati. And uh, Kendall was like you know what, uh, the Brent Spence Bridge has been a hot topic in Cincinnati. It is a terrible bridge. Like whenever you drive it, it's like when you're coming from the airport in Northern Kentucky and there's like no shoulders, you just hope the bridge doesn't break down. It's two layers. And um, what's fascinating about this bridge and actually the other bridges in Cincinnati is that it goes across the Ohio River. So um, for those of us who are aware of United States history, um, Ohio was part of the Union, Kentucky was part of the Confederate States, and so the Ohio River is very significant. And so you have these bridges that now cross into Ohio. And so she was like, why don't we tell the story of Cincinnati through three bridges, or Dreibrücken. Um, The reason why it's in German is because um, Germans uh, settled in Cincinnati, and there's actually a neighborhood in Cincinnati called Over the Rhine because they saw the Ohio River and it reminded them of the Rhine. So that's why it's in German. Um, also, I probably wanted to make it difficult for myself to not pronounce <laughs> it very well. Uh-huh. Um, so this choral piece is in three movements and I pitched it to Drew, who is um, 
coordinating this performance. And he's like, I think I like this idea. And I said, great. Um, I'd really like to get a choir. Like, how's this going to work? He's like, we will pay your musicians. And I'm like, awesome. So, um, I got to work. I also knew that um, they would not have much time to rehearse or put this together, which is usually how it is in new music. And so um, that's why I ended up um, adding some type of accompaniment because there wasn't going to be a piano in the space. I knew there was mm. going to be a synthesizer. And so therefore that's huh. why I decided to lean into that. Yeah. Um, so it's in three movements. First movement uh, is accompanied uh, SATB. Second movement is a split choir to represent the dual, the duality of the Brent's, the Brent Spence bridge. There's a upper level and a lower level. And so that's uh, the piece has like the two choirs broken up. Mm -hmm. um, and the third one is kind of um, looking to the future of kind of like bridging the gap and, you know, kind of pushing freedom forward again with the history of the Ohio River and, you know, thinking that slaves literally crossed the Ohio River before there were these bridges and kind of looking forward to a new bridge that Cincinnati will hopefully build in the future because they really need to replace that bridge. It is scary. <laughs> So um, that's the genesis of the piece, and it was performed um, at this gala. Um, I think I have very crappy video of it, some maybe on my YouTube channel from a long time ago. Yeah. I think I had a camera. It wasn't recorded, um, and it was while people were eating dinner. Like I said, it was... <laughs> um, it was a different experience than what the, 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 the gala attendees have experienced, but I think they wanted something more introspective. And so that's what, how, how this piece came to be. Yeah. Well, we added, uh, we did this my first year at the University of Toledo, and we added to the crappy video because we have a, I think, a flip camera kind of side, and it's just, it, the it's a total whitewash on the choir, and you can barely yeah. see anybody's faces. Um, but so there are a couple of crappy videos <laughs> of the piece. Uh, it's better. At least people weren't, like, eating. And, like, I, I'm not, I'm not even blaming the attendees. <laughs> like, they, we were at dinner. Yeah. Like, I probably stopped eating because I had had to say something before my piece if not i'd yeah. totally be eating through my own piece more or less because i was hungry. well uh i totally understood uh you know this uh podcast is officially presented by my group whatever and ever amen and we primarily sing at bars uh and restaurants and places like that so we never have music that is not accompanied uh by the clink of glasses exactly. or whatever else so that's i exactly. totally get it. um the third movement is gorgeous and it is uh, made more beautiful because there is so much um, kind of strife and angst in the music preceding it. Yes. And so as a listener, uh, if you're uh, watching the video, the crappy videos, or if you're sitting in the audience of a performance of this, there is uh, just so much kind of feeling of, of tension in the pieces, uh, in the movements preceding the end. And there's, um, I think it's in the second movement. Uh, I think the one of the choir one, one of the choirs I think is uh, singing in a high tessitura, uh, singing, we don't need uh, your sympathy. We don't need your empathy, I think is the yes. text. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And, um, it, I mean, it feels very intense and and, um, and then to end in this third movement that is so uh, 
kind of peaceful and and it, it as a singer feels so good when you get to that ending and you just get to sing these kind of long kind of warm lines um so i, I honestly uh, think i felt the same way while writing it because i was yeah. like we need to release some shit here <laughs> like, <laughs> right. we, just, <laughs> we, we need to end on a happy like positive warm note um yeah i, I think when I was working with Kendall, I, she's like, how do you want it to sound? And I think I said, I want it to sound like Christmas. And I know that sounds cheesy. Yeah. Um, so, so if you all want to listen to the, to the third movement and be like, does it sound like, seem like that warm hug when it's like snowing outside, yeah. you let me know. But that's yeah. kind of what I had in mind compared to the, like the scared for my life driving on the Brent Spence bridge um dealing with traffic and dealing with that really yeah aggressive text like we don't need your sympathy and these crunchy chords and yeah it was high in the tessitura my it, bad. sorry no 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 but that's great i mean that that uh highlights the um the emotional content of it i mean i i think that that it I shouldn't be any other way um it is interesting though because if somebody said uh you're going to sing a, a three movement piece about bridges uh i'm not sure that angst and strife and come you know this that, that's what i, I would picture I right you're like that's cute it's, it's how quaint it's bridges <laughs> we use uh, them and we we, we paint them Yay. yeah but it, it is rather intense um i did want to um i want to point out and you may or may not be able to speak to this but uh, I think it is in Brent Spence one, uh, uh, the layout of the poetry on the page um, is uh, super cool and really yes. important um, because, uh, and I don't know if I talked to you about this uh, and, and if I didn't, then I, maybe I'm just making it up and I'm, I could be lying, but I think it is, uh, looks like it is shaped like a suspension bridge on the page you, you got it it is and it it's it's super cool and i didn't i am sure i looked at this years ago when when we sang it but i was just looking at it again today and just trying to make sense of like what the poetry means and you you really do have to i think see it on the page um in addition to you know singing it as as it's composed um but that visual is um just, just really cool i just i uh, uh, i got a whole new appreciation for that uh that section of of the piece today well that's awesome i'm glad you caught it because um i knew that's what kendall was doing um and there was a part of me that felt bad that i was like when i put it in music i'm destroying that image but mm -hmm. you know i put it there in in the front matter of the score um, if I remember correctly, um, again, it's been quite a few years since I've written that. Oh, it's almost, it's nine years old. All right. So yeah. almost 10 years old. Woo. Um, the first movement is the Roebling bridge, which is actually uh, built before the, the famous Brooklyn bridge. They were built by and designed by the same person. Mm -hmm. So that's why it does look like a suspension bridge on its side. So, um, yeah. yes, once I get my website, like actually updated, um, yeah. I would encourage you all to check that out. And I'm, I'm sure Kendall would be absolutely thrilled to know that like you, you caught on to what she did there. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, 
this is a, a, a digression uh, uh, in the conversation. I flew into Cincinnati once years ago. Mm-hmm. I was on my way uh, to Charlotte from mm-hmm. Las Vegas. We were going for our, our fantasy football draft, uh, which we that's do in cool, person. Actually. We we kind of travel all around the country every year. Okay, that's good. Uh, <laughs> I knew that we had a, a stop in Cincinnati. I did not realize that the airport was in Cincinnati, North Kentucky. Correct. And and the flight attendant when we landed was just the most, just the sweetest uh, lady. And we're landing, and I think we'd already been drinking. It's 10 a.m., I don't know. Uh, but, you know, fantasy football draft weekend. Exactly. Um, and we're, we're, we're getting ready to land, and she... She says, welcome to Cincinnati, North Kentucky. You have experienced a time change. (laughs) And and I just thought that was the loveliest way to say that possible. And that has always stuck with me. I don't don't know why. That's awesome. And uh, I didn't, I've never thought about experiencing a time change. And she was, was lovely. That's anyway, amazing. so that's whenever I think of Cincinnati or Kentucky, that's the first thing in my that's brain. Great. That's great. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, this uh, newer piece, and I, I'm going to maybe have to look up the title. Uh, her, oh my goodness. Her it's right. speed left the winds behind. Yeah. And um, it has nothing it, to do with the text, so um, I've had to learn my own title. Yeah, it, it's open on that. my computer because I was listening to it right before we, we talked. Um, but... Uh, I ha- in all honesty to anybody who's listening, I have not finished listening to it. Uh, I'm about yeah, two thirds of the way. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but uh, I'm about two thirds of the way through and uh, I've been watching the video. The video is a trip. Uh, oh, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is. It's awesome. I feel, excuse me. I feel like I should have maybe had a, a couple more drinks before watching it. It's like, I mean, it's kind of trippy. Oh, it is. Um, and I think I can explain to both you and the audience um, what it's about. So yeah, it's actually about um, being in space. Um, so I wrote a piece that's part of a larger piece. Uh, there is this, um, my friend, Lindsay Kesselman, um, who's a soprano and she, she does a whole bunch of new music things. Um, she is in a trio co- called Trio Tree and Phatrix. Um, and um, the other singer, so she's a soprano. Um, Hai Ting Chin is mezzo-soprano and mm. I am blinking on the contralto, which is unfortunate because uh, she's amazing um and uh, anyway um this trio was hired by voices of ascension um in new york city and they wanted to commission new works for for choir and vocal works and so they had this this trio um work on a project um hi ting chin got the idea of you know um writing a piece about astronauts and she was listening to some astronaut interviews and she noticed that what they all had in common was what's called the overview effect, which is when an astronaut goes into space or if we were to ever go into space, 
and we're floating around, um, there's a sense of awe and wonder when you see our planet for the very first time. And she mm. noticed that is something that all astronauts had in common. You realize how grand and simultaneously fragile our planet is, and you you watch in amazement. Um, so Haiting thought it'd be really cool to assemble a bunch of quotes from astronauts about their experiences in space and she narrowed it down to women astronauts and then thought it'd be cool to come up with a collective piece where multiple composers write a movement in this collective work um and now i'm also blanking on the name of the whole piece i think we're getting late into the evening here um my bad um think 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 is it uh, astronautica yes thank you astronautica so that's the title of the whole piece um, and so they, um, she decided to ask women composers to write a movement. And so, uh, Lindsay put my name forward and what Haiting did at this point was she got to know every single one of the composers who wrote for this project. And, uh, she, yeah, I guess she stalked me on the internet, like at, like probably listened to prisoner of conscious. I'm hoping because yeah. <laughs> I'm really proud of that one. Um, and some other pieces of mine and came up with some quotes uh, from interviews from astronauts that probably would appeal to like my music or whatnot. So I ended up settling on a text that was extracted from an interview by former astronaut or retired astronaut, uh, Heidemarie Stepishen Pfeiffer, um, who talks about seeing planet Earth on the, fir the first time. She was, I think, probably working on the International Space Station. And uh, what drew me to her text was, you know, going back to this concept about like, we didn't know there were like living composers. I mean, we certainly know there are living astronauts, but we kind of see them as like, whoa, they're astronauts, right? Mm. Um, and they're just kind of superhuman in their own way. Um, in this interview, um, she was talking about seeing Earth for the first time. And she said she realized she's not as good in geography as she thought. And mm. I felt like, man, you know, I probably have nothing in common with this person. But I definitely know I'm not as yeah. good in geography as I think. And she went on to say that it's because when you look at a map, you have borders and lines um and when you're floating in space you have rivers and mountains and you you try yeah. you know when you're seeing shapes and everything disoriented um it's way harder to figure out where you are um so in reference to the video that brad saw um this piece was originally supposed to be performed the summer of 2020 national sawdust and yeah. <laughs> sad face we all know yeah. what happened um, and especially, um, if you're a singer, you are spreading some, you know, you're, you're spreading something. So, mm. uh, that performance had to be canceled. So instead, um, the singers were like, you know what, like we, we need to record this. We need to perform this. So fun fact, everything in NASA is public domain. You can use photographs, you can use interviews, you can use video, mm. um, and you know, as long as you give them credit. So um, there's an excerpt. Uh, so now my piece has video and actually the whole piece has video and we hope to perform it. Like we were, we were thinking about trying to get a hold of NASA, but they're really hard to get a hold of actually, sure. <laughs> like ridiculously hard. Um, and so um, 
during the 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 part in my piece where it's like I'm not as good in geography as I thought. There are lakes and rivers, and you actually see video of the of our planet, but they have labels like Kentucky and Cincinnati. Actually, they pass on through that. Um, I, I thank Tai Ting for doing that. She's like, oh no no, they have videos that NASA does for you uh. that does this. She's like, because it's really difficult to figure that out. So. Um, that's that's the piece in the video and uh that's kind of why i chose it is that i found something human in this dialogue yeah it's super cool i i mentioned to you before we started officially recording it made me it made me laugh but like in the best way there's you know i'm, I'm listening to this piece and uh i'm going to pull up the text really quick so they're talking about you spend a lot of time at the beginning of the piece. They say, we came out on a night pass. We came out, we came out. You know, it's this kind of setup about before they see Earth, right? And, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I'm kind of listening to this and, um, you know, there's some repeated texts and I'm, I'm getting ready to have our conversation tonight. And so I'm, you know, kind of doing some <laughs> other stuff. And then I just hear them go, wow and i it, it made me laugh and i i felt guilty at first because i thought I, I don't know if this is supposed to be funny if i'm if it's okay to laugh at this but i went back at, and and then was reading the text and uh it, it i i think it was funny because it it was so human because it it, it felt real right it was um uh, language that I use, right? And that Correct, so often yeah. in choral music, you, uh, you know, you're singing text that sounds nothing like the way we talk. And uh, I think that's a barrier to the audience sometimes, but this is so easily connected. And so, yeah, they say, wow. And I, I, I guess I wasn't as good as geography as I thought. And I, I was laughing, but not because the words were, were funny, but just because I, I, it felt like a shared experience right like that's, exactly that's what i would it. say i'd look at the earth and go wow you know yeah actually i was i was reading the original interview the text from the original interview because like Haiting went back and forth um the first draft of the libreticized interview i was like there was a lot of technical jargon and I will say for me personally as a composer, it's really hard for me to set four and five syllable words. It's really difficult. Like I do it on occasion and I think it sucks. Um, so yeah. um, I was wondering if Haiting, um, who's libretticized things before and she was a singer herself, like could like give me different versions so that there was less of that technical language. So what yeah. I found fascinating about this text, the original interview was that you know, Hyde Marie was like, she's an expert, right? She's an astronaut in space. She's talking about, okay, so we got on the EVO thing, blah, 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 like being all technical. And she's like, oh, and I was done with my, you know, I, I was done with my chores. So I thought like I'd take a moment and you can tell in the interview, she's like, so I took a moment and was like, wow. And in the interview, she actually said, wow, so many times. Yeah. Explain the first time she saw earth from outer space. So I was like, I have to highlight that. And this just, just to really kind of pause time and, and pause the, the flow of the music just to allow these wows to come across. Like, I almost think that I took some out or, or that Haiting took some out. Cause she's just, she's like, wow, this is amazing. And to go from somebody who's like, 
I'm technical, I'm trained to do this, this is my job, I'm just doing my job. And then just to have that moment of humanity of like, wow, and oh, where am I? And I yeah. laughed when I read that. Like, yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did too, because I, I wanted you to feel that reaction. Like I, I usually have no control over how like people feel about my music. And I, I'm glad you found it funny too. And, and that's what really drew me to the text where I could just be like, yeah, I think I would react in the same way because yeah. <laughs> I don't know any of the technical stuff at all. Well, uh, from the little bit uh, that I've, the, the short amount of time that I've spent with the piece, uh, I know that I like it already. And I like it for much the same reason that I like the other two pieces we discussed that um, it, it finds a way to uh, be specific to a, a moment, right? I mean, it, her, the, the, the singer singing, wow, the, the person saying, wow, that's, that's about a very, very specific moment in time. True. Um, and so, and it captures a moment, um, but still, you know, it, it feels like it is, it, uh, goes on, right? I mean, it, it's yeah. not just captured in that moment, right? It, it applies right. to something bigger than that. Um, but I, I, I love that about uh, the pieces that you've done for choirs, that they are about a, a really specific moment and that um, you're not afraid of, of that because I feel like so many composers have this idea about... Um, you know, writing something that is for posterity's sake, which I don't really understand the kind of um, arrogance behind thinking that your piece is going to last for hundreds of years. I mean, I, I hope everybody who I've talked to on this podcast, I hope your music lasts a really long time. Um, but <laughs> uh, the, the moment, the moment is so important. Um, and choral music is, that's what it is, right? It's a moment shared between a performer and an audience. And, and so, uh, I think your music does that really well. Wow, thank you so much. I will I will say that I remember when I was an undergrad, I was like, I learned of all these pieces, right, in, in the core, the repertoire, um, like what makes a great piece. And I remember like thinking like, well, how do I make my piece great or last? Like whatever that means, right? That's such an abstraction. And what I realized was some, of our like so-called famous pieces or ones that stuck around, actually they were not concerned about lasting. They were in the moment and they were speaking yeah. their truth. Um, Symphony of Psalms, actually. I think I was reading about Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms and he was commissioned by the Boston Symphony to write them a piece. And uh, if I recall correctly in uh, Alex Ross's The Rest is Noise, like his wife wasn't doing so well health-wise. And so he went back to Russian Orthodoxy and was trying to find meaning in life. And through that, we have this wonderful piece that, um, that you know, I, I still love and, you know, is still being performed. And I was like, you know what? I should not try to write a piece that will survive. I will try to write my truth and try to do my best writing my truth. Yeah. And so, so thank you so much for those kind words because that means a lot. Thank you. Hey, can you write uh, like a lot more choir music? Could you just start cranking to. that out? Uh, maybe <laughs> let me, let me rephrase that. 
to anyone who's listening, tell all of your friends to commission Jen to write more choral music because we need more of it. Uh, Thank you. I just think it's great. I um, it's, it's so funny because like, I think people don't know me as a choir conductor or a choir yeah. composer. I write whatever, like a lot of people in the band world are like, oh, do you actually write for voice? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sad. <laughs> like, I actually, I like, I like writing things I would like to sing myself. So if that's a yeah. promotion for my own music, like I wish I yeah. could sing my own pieces. Uh, can I ask you a few kind of like quick hit things that are unrelated to music or anything maybe that we've been talking about? Go for it. Um, you mentioned uh, Ted Lasso, which I think everyone should agree was like the best show of best 2020 show. and uh, yeah, 2020 and amazing and lovely. Uh, are you, I mean, are you a TV person? Do you, have you been binging a lot of things? Did you binge through the pandemic? Um, I tend to binge through dinner. So um, over time, um, yes, I've seen Ted Lasso. Um, I saw all of Modern Family recently. That took a while. That's um, a good one, yeah. But I don't think I like binge binge, but well, what's your definition of binge? Like three or four episodes in a sitting? Sure. Then yes, okay. Uh, any other things that you've watched lately you've been really excited about? Um, I really liked WandaVision. Like I went seen through it really fast yeah. um, when you have time. I thought it was done really well with very good research. Um, yeah, I, I will I will say nothing else. I'm sure there are spoilers online. And I didn't think I was like a comic book fan, but props to props to that series. Um, I liked. OK, so it's only on Peacock. So I guess, yeah, okay, guilty. I do binge watch. Um, the new show, I'm gonna have to Google this, sorry. Peacock, uh, new shows. It's about um, doo -doo -doo, Rutherford Falls. And that was well-written, really diverse cast and really diverse set of writers. So it's about like small town America, about this guy whose uh, ancestors founded Rutherford Falls, but they're also on a, Native American land and mm. dealing with that, um, you know, reality there. So I would say that's a good show. Um, I did like Modern Family. I admit, like even toward the, although toward the end it was like, okay, okay, we can wrap it up. Um, it's so still good. I, and it charming, is still good right? and charming. Um, if there are any suggestions of what to watch next, I'm actually looking out for it. But I do know that Ted Lasso does start on July 23rd. It's very so. soon. Well, uh, so I have two to ask you about, uh, be, mostly because we were talking about space and female astronauts. Um, do, do you, well, you must have Apple TV because you watched Ted Lasso or you had it at some point. Did you watch For All Mankind? No, but it's on my list because it's, it's an interesting I, story. I did not think that I was going to like it when I heard, like, I just, I don't know if I saw a preview or talked to somebody who'd seen it, but I did not think I was going to like it. It's really good. Yeah, uh, for those who don't know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because you've yeah. actually seen it, I have not. It's like an alternate reality where the Russians landed on the moon first, I think. It, it is, that's exactly right. So the Russians okay. land on the moon first, and then there are a lot more um, diverse players uh, in the United States uh, making trips to the moon and yes. so on. So there are uh, yes. females, people of color who are mm -hmm. uh, now involved in the space race. And it is, um, 
they're getting ready. They must be filming season three now. Um, And so there's a lot of time in between season one and season two, and a lot of time between season two and season three. And they do a really good job with this alternate history. Uh, The other show um, that I have only seen two episodes of, but I think that I kind of love is uh, Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Okay. So it is, um, uh, now I can't remember her last name, Annie from uh, Schitt's Creek. Yes, uh, I saw her on the on the promo. So I, that's on Apple TV? No, that's on AMC. Okay. Um, to... But I've seen two episodes and it's uh, kind of genius. Um, that's So awesome. anyway. I remembered one more, sorry. Um, on yeah. Apple TV, Mythic Quest, where they make fun of the video game writers. Um, yeah. Since I will be, I'm writing, I'm supposed to be writing my brother's um, video game this summer. Like they, nice. they have an alpha version out. So I thought that was, that was really good. Mythic. That's on my list. That's coming up soon-ish. It might be a tiny bit of a spoiler, but F. Murray Abraham is in it. So I was like excited. That's it. Yeah. AKA Solid. Uh, you, we talked about drinks earlier and you said you might be drinking a bourbon. Uh, what is your normal go-to drink? Are you a, like cocktails, liquor kind of person, wine, beer? What's, what's your go-to? So, um, so this is interesting because normally when um, we're not in a pandemic, I would actually really like craft cocktails. Um, when I was yeah. living in Cincinnati, there's this um, mixologist named Molly Wellman. You could follow her on uh, Instagram and I think she has published a book where uh, she had the spar japs and it was just like her own bitters. It was just amazing. I just love the classic cocktails. That being said, I'm lazy and I don't make them at home. Although yeah. props to my friends, Transient Canvas who come with their own bar. Like they have a fold away bookshelf nice. and they have a travel bar. Um, so that being said, um, my drink at home is, is now scotch. <laughs> I've just nice. gone hardcore, but I really love it. But I'm not really a peaty scotch drinker. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, scotch is my drink. Yeah. You know, I uh, I like to tell people that I'm uh, discerning but not discriminating. Yes. Uh, you know, so if it's good and it's done well, I'm I'm kind of into. I switched. Uh, I'm I moved to bourbon at some point uh, during our conversation all right what bourbon uh, are you drinking uh i've got some basil hayden's somewhere behind I love me basil hayden's and supposedly it goes really well with uh thin mints <laughs> uh, okay yeah <laughs> somebody paired it uh but anyways no basil hayden's is a is a great bourbon yeah uh what it, uh last meal you could pick one meal for your last meal what's it gonna be oh man oh there's so much good food right oh my god um you know um what is uh i'm like googling thing what is that (laughs) dish um yes so traditional filipino food lumpia it's like the egg rolls but better yeah i might do that because i won't have to worry about eating too much fried food the next morning i suppose Yeah, fair enough (laughs) fair enough i'll go with that for now but that can change there's just there's a lot of good food out there yeah uh are you listening to any um commercial music pop music uh anything on the radio right now that's got you excited um yeah you know um so i'm actually pulling up what i've been listening to um on the spotify um admittedly i have been listening to the ted lasso soundtrack 
So Mumford and Sons does do that. Plus they have some really good mixes in there. Um, I've also been, um, probably a month ago, I was on a Prince kick because I was writing a piece and the kids are like, you should listen to Prince when you write our piece. And I'm like, the kids are all right. That's yeah. And I also miss Prince. Like I can't, oh man, makes me sad. So I would say, um, anything funk, definitely Prince and, uh, and Mumford and Sons, which are completely different, I think, but a little bit, a little bit different, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was so happy that you agreed to do this with me because, um, I just, I just think you're just a nice person. <laughs> I, oh, and I you, genuinely, Brad. I like your music and, um, was so happy that, uh, so happy you could be here. Same. I was actually really glad you reached out. I'm glad it finally happened. Um, cause it's, it's been a minute, I think. Yeah, it sure has, you know, uh, I, I have said this, uh, I think, to a couple of different people that I've had on. Some of the people that you, you're going to be episode seven of this podcast. So we're still pretty early in, in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've most mostly reached out to people that I've, I've worked with and, and know a little bit. Um, uh, you know, sometimes you, you, you meet people and you go, okay, we've, we've met. Um, and sometimes you meet people and you go, oh, I, I think I, we're friends. Like we've met once or whatever, but we're friends. And um, you just kind of uh, know that you like a person. And that was how I felt uh, when we met that I just thought like, oh yeah, we could be friends. Um, you're, you are such a kind person and you were gracious working with uh, me and with our students and have, um, uh, I think, you know, after you left, you, you even were like commenting on their social media and nice to them and they like made their lives it was awesome i Um, i I loved working with your students and yes i can't believe they're like grown up now and taking various music ed jobs i've been i have been following them on instagram (laughs) they they Uh, were wonderful it was uh it was lovely and and i hope that we have a chance to have real drinks in person sometime soon and that the world is not completely fucked and then we, yes. <laughs> you know things get back to somewhat normal i'm um, very much looking forward to this brad it'll be yeah it'll be awesome thank you so much uh i don't know if you have any of your pseudo drink your drink yeah A bit. yeah there you go cheers thanks for being chin, here chin. all right take care brad Thank you for joining us for episode seven of the Composer Happy Hour presented by Whatever and Ever Amen. Thank you to my guest, Jennifer Jolly, for joining me today. I hope those of you listening have been as excited about this slate of guests as I have been. If you've heard multiple episodes, you can probably sense a few different themes that are coming through. There is, at some point, a plan to do a bonus episode to talk about that and to also talk more about Whatever and Ever Amen in general. I promise it is going to happen soon. In the meantime, go and listen to more of Jen's music. She has a ton of wonderful music for non-choral ensembles that I think you'll enjoy. I would be remiss if I didn't remind you to rate and review our podcast on your streaming platform of choice. This will only take you a couple minutes to do, and it will help us out a lot. 
there are a number of high-quality podcasts out there related to choral music. And I hope you check them out too. But I also want to make sure that people are able to find this podcast. Your ratings and reviews help them do that. My guest next time is David Montoya, and we look forward to sharing a drink with you then. Thanks again, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.